Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, satirist, writer and performer Brian Dorr speaks to Andrew Fowler, journalist and author of the new book, The Most Dangerous Man in the World, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks Fight for Freedom. A quick note, as this is a recording of an event held live over the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now he's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. It is my deep, deep pleasure tonight to introduce you to one of Reading's favourite friends, to a man that has been filling our screens for many, many years, for someone who has unfaultingly given us gift after gift after gift. And of course, I'm talking about Brian Dorr. I'm talking about the man that is an artist, a satirist, a writer, a screenplay, and altogether quite quite brilliant. Over to you, Brian. Thank you. Uh, I didn't pay any money to this person for saying any of that, by the way. Um, Andrew Fowler, who I'm about to introduce, uh, is an award-winning investigative journalist and uh, former reporter for the ABC Foreign Correspondent Program and Four Corners. Um, Andrew began his uh, journalism career in the early 1970s covering uh, the IRA bombing campaign uh, for the London Evening News. Uh, He has been the chief of staff and acting foreign editor of the Australian newspaper, which we can all forgive him for. Um, Andrew first interviewed uh, Julian uh, Sand for Foreign Correspondent in 2010, uh, for which the program won the New York Festival Gold Medal. And he wrote the first edition of this book, The Most Dangerous Man in the World, in 2011. Andrew has written two other very fine books uh, on journalism, The War on Journalism, and one I've just finished reading and highly recommend, uh, called The Shooting the Messenger, Criminalising Journalism. Andrew Fowler, thank you very much for joining us tonight. I haven't said that for a while. First of all, congratulations on an excellent uh, update of The Most Dangerous Man in the World. Uh, You stated in your recent book on the media, Shooting the Messenger, that at a time when journalists have never been more needed to explain the complexities of an increasingly integrated world, they have never been more under attack. Um, In in many ways, the story, the extraordinary story of the silence, WikiLeaks and the Strange, has more global ramifications now than perhaps when your book first appeared nine years ago. Many of the things you're saying in the first edition today we see very clearly, and it seems pretty obvious that silencing the idea of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks uh, does evolve from fear by governments of more clones of them, in essence frightening off the whistleblower. There's no doubt about that, Brian. In fact, um The notion of persecuting and pursuing Assange has always been about just that. It's been about silencing journalism. It's been about intimidating journalism. Let's not forget that Assange was also working with The Guardian, Le Monde, New York Times at times, and El Pace, other newspapers. And the notion of being able to single out Assange for prosecution, or persecution, you might call it, is to send a message to everybody else involved in that venture that they have to watch their step because they could be next. 
I suppose the good news is that the attempt to intimidate Assange didn't work because Edward Snowden came out um, in 2013 and, uh, and revealed many of the secrets that the United States had held close about the way they were spying on not, not only their own citizens, but the rest of the world. So it works up to a point. It works up to a point, but it depends on the individual and whether the individual organization or the individual journalist decides to be intimidated. And certainly Assange is an example to us all that he's not intimidated, but he is in grave danger. Yeah. Um, we'll come back to that whole thing about uh, journalists today uh, being persecuted because every time you open up a newspaper in this country, uh, we see the same thing. We now have a, an incredible situation in America where you have a president almost encouraging the military and the police to join forces. Um, but let's just go back to Assange. I mean, he's currently enjoying a prolonged incarceration at Her Majesty's pleasure, of course, in a high-security Belmarsh prison, which in itself is an, an attempt at intimidation. It's unnecessary, clearly. Um, when you are being judged by a very conflicted judiciary in another country, when you're dumped by your own country, which he has been, and pursued by perhaps the biggest political bully on the planet, the chance of getting a fair hearing, let alone justice, looks a tad remote, doesn't it? And um, can you just workshop us through where Assange stands legally and what, if any, chance you think he has of having uh, an extradition uh, being rejected? I think one of the major problems that Assange has is that the bar to him being extradited to the United States is quite low. By that, what I mean is that the United States doesn't have to prove very much, only that there's a case to answer. It doesn't have to prosecute the entire case against him. So they only have to just prove that there's a case, as I say, to answer, and then he can be extradited. And the danger he will then face once he's in the United States, in the clutches of that particular judicial system, which we've seen um, a rather capricious president um, using at his will to, to free his mates. If you're not a mate of the president, then I think you're in grave danger, particularly when that particular president says that the media is the enemy of the American people. To go back to Assange in the United Kingdom, he is being judged by a judiciary that is completely conflicted. The senior magistrate who's overseeing the case, who oversees all these high-profile cases, is somebody called Lady Arbuthnot. She is related to um, a member of the House of Lords, her husband, uh, who had a company relationship with a former head of MI6. Um, uh, Lord Arbuthnot... I, I can see the conflict of interest here, Andrew. I'm sorry, I have to pick you up uh, on that. Yes. Uh, and so the, consequently, what you have then is somebody who is deeply involved in the, in the political um, military intelligence establishment overseeing a case which exposes the wrongdoings of that particular establishment. Now, I mean, that's, if you like, bad enough, right? It seems pretty obvious. But when you actually read the guidelines, these are guidelines by which yeah. the judiciary should operate, it says that if you are in any way related, even remotely through the family, 
to somebody who's involved in any of those activities that you're judging or being involved with, you should absent yourself from this. You should not be yeah. involved at all. And so it's yeah. a clear conflict of interest. Yeah. I mean, reading the book, I was going to get to uh, Judge Emma uh, Arbuthnot because um, the chief magistrate, because I mean, she sort of comes out of almost uh, the worst elements of English pantomime, really. And the, in fact, your book, I mean, at times I had to remind myself I was reading a factual narrative, uh, not a fictional cross between Shakespeare and a John le Carre novel, which, which at times it just becomes. And Shakespeare was right. You can't have comedy without drama and you can't have drama, drama without the comedy. And, and uh, her, um, uh, the chief magistrate certainly fits that in, in those terms. So what are you saying you think can happen now in terms of that that just being stopped and and everyone going hey listen let's just let him go it would be possible for australia to take a very strong stand yes well, it yes. would be possible to argue with our dear beloved intelligent sharing and military sharing pals in the united kingdom and the united states that this is a political offence. Yes. That we object seriously to one of our own being prosecuted for a political offence and also as a journalist. Yeah. Because it's not just, I mean, this guy is actually revealing information that's very embarrassing for governments, but has led to nobody being killed. There have been no deaths as a result directly attributed to the work done by WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. This is just a case of utter bastardry by the United States to prosecute a journalist, to shut them up. And that means to actually shut up the New York Times, the Washington Post, Washington Post, the Guardian, everybody. This country could stand up for its citizen and could speak to Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and could say, we strongly object to the way that Assange is being treated. We don't want him extradited. And by the way, Boris Johnson thinks that the extradition treaty is rather one-sided, that the Americans do tend to get their hands on British subjects more easily than the reverse. So there is an argument there. Uh, but so yeah. far, what I can see of it, we haven't had any strong comments from the Australian government making any forward movement in that area. In, that area. in fact, just the reverse, just saying, that Assange has to face the music, which is yeah. made by Morrison. Yeah, well, I mean, it comes back to this thing of, uh, let's face it, the Australian government's attitude all along has been a continuance of, you know, obsequiousness when it comes to the relationship with the US. I mean, we seem to be very good at giving government support to uh, Australian drug smugglers in Asia and giving Asian leaders a clip around the ears if they get uppity. But... When it comes to America, uh, that's not the case at all. I mean, look at, let's be reminded about David Hicks and Mahmoud Habib uh, as two cases in point. Um, you know, that, that was an example of this. And then you've got Alexander Downer, uh, of course, uh, the former minister for being abroad, uh, and our man in London, who, who, who's come out quite clearly and is not prepared to back him in any way, uh, shape or form. While we're on 
Alexander, um, can you tell us about the night on the turf so you had with Trump's election advisor, uh, George Papadopoulos? What happened and what were the ramifications? Well, what's interesting about that, Brian, is that, uh, first of all, it was a wine bar, one of the best wine bars in London, I'm told. Gee, that would be unusual for Alexander, I would have thought. Well, except the... Don't cast aspersions on him, Andrew. He wasn't drinking wine, though. He was, um, he was drinking gin and tonic, by all accounts. And okay. he brought with him to this meeting that he had with George Papadopoulos, who, as you say, was um, Trump's, one of his foreign advisors. Um, he brought with him a political officer from the High Commission, who uh, apparently had uh, a friendship, close friendship, with um, the political officer from the Israeli embassy. Mm. So here's Papadopoulos, gets a call from Downer, goes along and meets him, and, and suggests, by all accounts, that um, there was some dirt on Hillary Clinton about, and, um, and it might be coming out soon. This was in the middle of the election year. So Alexander Downer dutifully fires off a missive to Canberra just to say, had a meeting, discovered this stuff, um, and sent it off. Then just in July, just before the convention, um, WikiLeaks dropped the famous Hillary Clinton emails, uh, which showed that Bernie Sanders had been given preferential treatment. And, um, sorry, Bernie Sanders had not been given preferential treatment. Um, yes, uh, Hillary Clinton had been given preferential treatment um, to clip Bernie's wings. And, um, at that time, a downer now went straight to the American embassy in London and told them that, uh, that Clinton's emails might be connected to Russia. He had the meeting, so he, he, relay, he relayed that information to them directly. Um, without telling uh, Malcolm. Without, te without, telling, without telling the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, who said that... Uh, Downer had no right to do that. And I mean, and I think, you know, he's actually an Australian representative, the High Commissioner in London, and dealing directly with the Americans. Yeah. Two, two days after that, that uh, information was passed to the Americans, the FBI sought an interview yeah. with Downer right out of the blue. And, uh, and it's, it, was, uh, it was like, what the hell's going on? Um, suddenly we're being asked, the FBI is being asked, is asking to interview our High Commissioner. And that was the beginning of the Russia Gate investigation. It was, as the FBI described it, it was the tipping point. That was the point when they were yeah. looking. We will come back to the Russian spook thing because that's an important part of this story. Um, with, can we just go back to uh, the, uh, the the embassy now because there's some fabulous stories. In, latter, in the latter years um, that make this very Shakespearean, uh, particularly the bizarre activities uh, leading up to the British wallopers storming, storming the joint and hustling Julian off to his new accommodation at Belmarsh. Um, this was beyond, really, beyond pantomime, wasn't it? I mean, the, when, when I read this, it's like a script from one of those British carry-on movies, you know, carry on up the embassy. Can you explain what happened? Because it was beyond me to explain it. I'll do my best, um, as Thanks. simple as I can. Um, it's in the book. Um, better told, I think, but I'll do my best. What happened was um, a group of um, what you might call opportunists got their hands on some video surveillance material of the Ecuadorian embassy. 
Um, there was apparently acres of it because the embassy had been under internal surveillance for many, many years, since 2015. Yeah. So these chancers decided, having got their hands on this material, that they would put out on, the, um, on Twitter. They'd sort of say, well, look, um, we've got this information. Who wants to buy it? So WikiLeaks, Christian Harafterson, who's the editor-in-chief, saw this and thought, that's very interesting. Well, we might. I'll have a look at that. So he arranged to meet these people in Madrid, where they were based. And um, they met. And um, these guys wanted, and they were th three men, uh, wanted um, three million euros for the, for the material. So a, a deal of sorts was clinched. Um, this is over coffee, isn't it? Over coffee in a very palatial um, hotel. In Madrid. In the middle of Madrid, yeah, an unlikely place to be. And um, so they got their, WikiLeaks got hold of this material and went back to London. And they decided, let's tell the media that the, we've been spied on. Our, our legal representatives advising Julian Assange on what to do and how we're going to deal with this complex situation has been recorded and is possibly in the hands of the Americans. Um, so they decided they'd hold a press conference, which they duly did, and they, they showed the slides. These were pictures of the material that was showing what was going on inside the embassy, thinking the media would be mightily interested, which they were, of course. But people that were far more interested were the Metropolitan Police. Wait, yes, I was going who, to say the... Um, within hours. The, yes. Um, and, um, they crashed in the door and dragged Julian Assange out down yes. the steps. Enter stage right. Exactly. Uh, well, I mean, Shakespeare did say, Claudius in Hamlet said, uh, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. And away it went from there, didn't it, really? Everyone got involved. He uh, did indeed. I mean, he was carrying Gore Vidal's book out the door called... Kiss. Yes. It, a, a wonderful sense of irony uh, to carry a copy of that book. <laughs> <laughs> secret state uh, down the stairs as he was taken away in the can i uh, can i just say something as a, a passing thing i mean con considering the surveillance because it starts off just normal surveillance and then this spanish mob get involved don't they and they can see a quid so they do a really bat botchy job of covering the whole thing but incredible surveillance i mean what i wanted to know was how could assange and his partner in the end end up pregnant twice i mean does well, that bring new meaning to the word quickie or what you know well i think it might bring new meaning to the word covert my god i mean the ability uh to actually have that relationship over that period of time three years i think it was accounting it was yeah um to actually and and to to carry on a substantial relationship when you're under so much pressure it was extraordinary so pressure. and yeah. to actually and yeah. to maintain that and to maintain a relationship in that period of time yeah. uh, have children but also to yeah. have them come into the embassy it requires an extraordinary strength of character an extraordinary strength of character to do that yeah yeah um i i mean I, it was interesting going back to downer again about what happened uh with papadopoulos etc when he came, when uh, Downer, what was it, this November at the Canberra Press Club, uh, 
I, I, I think it's important to reiterate how much we haven't done for Assange. And, and uh, Downer said, even if Australia wanted to bring WikiLeaks founder home, it doesn't have any grounds to do so. Now, and he said, it doesn't matter whether you agree with the operation on WikiLeaks or not, everyone has to face the law. Um, I mean, what is that about? Does, does it matter? It's, it's patently untrue. I mean, it's patently yeah. untrue. What Downer said is patently untrue. In an extradition case, politics plays a role. Yeah. Politics is very important. And how do we know that? Because the United States, um, <clears throat> excuse me, embassy was talking to the German um, um, uh, counterintelligence counter uh, deputy chief about a case involving an attempt to extradite um, agents out of uh, CIA people out of, um, out of Germany. And, uh, and they were talking about this, and this is one of the WikiLeaks cables, you can read it. And, they, and the guy said, look, um, it's about justice, but it's also about politics, this decision. And of course, yeah. they did not then extradite these CIA guys who've been involved in, in, uh, in, in dragging a, a, a rather uh, unfortunate fellow um, um, off, uh, off a bus in, um, in North Macedonia when he sort of stopped well, Mr. El Masri, I'll, I'll, I'll get on to him in a minute if we could just stay to, with Australia. Yes. I mean, historically, we, we expect this sort of falling behaviour from most Conservatives, not all of them, to be honest. But the Labour Party hardly distinguished itself in this matter either. I mean, Gillard was no supporter, nor was Bob Carr when he was the Foreign Minister, is now, I believe. Sure. Nicola Robson, I mean, it, it, that's what is, is rather tragic, isn't it? How collective politically, apart from some individuals who who, who just left him to it, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. And it goes to the heart of that, the intelligence sharing relationship and, and yeah. the United States will come to our aid. Well, certainly that's another question, but the intelligence sharing relationship is what it's all about. And the governments are just terrified that the Americans will cut off our intelligence and, um, you know, we will be, as they'll see, kind of blinded in parts of the world. And, I mean, if that's a realistic proposition, well, then tell us why we're not going to the aid of our, of our people. If that is the issue, yeah, yes. and explain that to us. I mean, Howard pointed to it in part when he talked about the invasion of Iraq, a very unpopular war in this country with hundreds of thousands in the streets. And he said part of the reason for going in is to do with the intelligence sharing relationship that we have with the U.S. So let's have that argument out. Let's work out whether or not it's worth it or not to be abandoned in a foreign country because of the intelligence sharing relationship with the United States. Is that what we accept as Australian citizens? Yeah. Um, you, you're, you're a strong believer as a journalist. Uh, if you can't prove it, don't say it. You're, you're all so stated in your book where the information comes from is not important uh, if it's in the public interest. So colouring the perception of Assange has become almost an Olympic sport, hasn't it, over the years? Um, and it, the, it kept on going from the Swedish sex charges right through to finally him being painted as a Russian stooge or as an ABC TV executive producer known to both of us so stylishly described Assange as Putin's bitch. Uh, we won't go into the loss of journalistic standards at the ABC right now, but let's talk about the things that seem to have turned some people off Assange and WikiLeaks. Assange is the Russian stooge. Uh, you have a strong view about that. 
Well, where's the proof? Yeah. Well, you can't just say this. But that's what was happening, wasn't it? No, you can say it. But as a journalist, as a journalist, you go back to 2008 and you read a counterintelligence document leaked by WikiLeaks, written by the army, which said specifically, destabilize WikiLeaks and go for the center of gravity and hit the center of gravity to destabilize it. Because it's a, it's a threat to the United States military um, establishment. So as a journalist, I go, okay, the US says that he's Putin's bitch. Well, where's the evidence of that? And is it that he took documents that may or may not have been provided to anybody who asked for them, by the way, um, which showed that, uh, that, the, um, that the Clinton administration had been, the Clinton presidential uh, aspiration had been, had been f uh, favoured over, over Sanders? If that's the argument that he's a bitch because of that, then, then we're all Putin's bitches because every journalist worth their salt would have published that. I defy any, yeah. anywhere, four corners yeah. else. If they're given documents which show that Hillary's getting preferential treatment, you publish. Well, that, that is the point. And that point hasn't been made very well by many people because the, 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 the media has chosen to ignore that small problem that they have on their hands when they should have, they should have, have published, no matter what. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To Mr. El Masri, Mr. Khaled El Masri, which I think is a really uh, important part of that book because, first of all, it's not a name that rolls off the tongues. We probably don't know him very well unless you've been watching. Um, but it, it was one of the reminders, I thought, in your book that if we needed to know what illegal and immoral deaths uh, the US and others were prepared to go to silence Assange, then the answer is in uh, the chapter in your book called The Trouble with Hillary. Tell us what happened to Lebanese-born German citizen Khaled El-Masri. Um, it wasn't quite, he had an Arab name, so he must be a terrorist, but it came damn close. It did. In fact, he was, um, he was having matrimonial troubles. Um, so he decided to go to North Macedonia to get away from Germany where he was living. Uh, as you say, a Lebanese originally a German citizen. And when he crossed the border into North Macedonia, um, he was stopped and taken off the bus he was on and held in a hotel and questioned day after day after day. And um, I discovered what's well, in the book. Um, of course, the reason he was stopped was because he had a similar name to uh, an Al-Qaeda bomb maker. But um, it... it <laughs> It wasn't very well explained to the guards who dragged him off the bus or to the interrogators who were working on behalf of the Americans who tried to threaten and um, threatened to shoot him if he didn't admit he was an Al-Qaeda bomb maker. They eventually took him to Afghanistan uh, where he was held in a small cell, um, a filthy cell. He was um, psychologically tortured. He repeatedly asked for the German um, consul or ambassador or some diplomatic representation, got nothing. And here's the point about all this, Brian. The CIA knew, knew. Yeah. who they thought he was, but they didn't release him because it would be embarrassing. The Red Cross would discover that they had their, their, their extraordinary rendition program of snatching people off the streets and it would become public and it would blow the cover. So they kept him in that hellhole in Afghanistan. And how do we know that? 
because the Inspector General of Intelligence of the United States published a report, a full report that you can read, which says yes. just that. So given that, given that he's in these circumstances, he's eventually, after a few months, he's released in Albania, goes back to Germany, and then starts to try and put his life back together again and thinks, maybe I can get some justice here. So he... Oh, I, I, if I can just pull you up, oh. I love what you described as one of the great acts of delusion. Oh, yes. And movements, uh, before being released by the CIA, I, I, you wouldn't want to miss this bit, the CIA instruct Mr. El-Masri to, to do what? Not to talk not to, to the... Talk. Mr. El-Masri, you are not to talk to the media. So about what happened. So he didn't. And Andrew, people like me are supposed to be doing satire. Um, he, talked, he talked to a lawyer. Yes. Yes. So he didn't talk to the media, he talked to a lawyer. And I'd be take, I would have taken the CIA to the ACCC and charged him under the Restrictive Trade Practices Act. Um, but he yeah. goes to a lawyer, and, but the injustices keep on giving, don't they? Well, they do, because he goes to, he thinks, look, um, I'll, um, obviously the, this report's come out, it's exonerated me. Um, he's built a whole profile involving a lot of WikiLeaks material as well. The case is very watertight about how he's been treated. And he goes to the United States and the lower court says, kicks it out. He appeals to the higher court. They say, no, it goes to the Supreme Court. And they say, uh, the White House has decided that this is now a matter of national, uh, uh, national security importance and we can't hear the case. He then tries to bring a civil case and when he goes into America, he tries to go to America, they block him at the border and say he can't come in. He can't bring his prosecution to the United States. So eventually he goes to the European Court of Justice and he does get some justice there. He gets a small payment and he gets recognition that his story was true and that he had been so appallingly treated by a country who supposedly stands for democracy and justice. Yeah, well, you can see why Assange could be Assange could be forgiven for feeling the cavalry wasn't going to turn up, and he was going to get out alive. Um, okay, the dogs bark, the caravan moves on. Um, it, it's January twenty seventeen. Uh, Trump has been sworn in, and then a fascinating chap in your book uh, called Adam Waldman fronts up to the Ecuadorian embassy, invited by WikiLeaks to a meeting. Now, what's he doing there? Um, and tell us about Vault 7, because I love, I love their work, and that the Dream Merchants, the mobile devices branch of the CIA. Well, Adam Walden, very, very, very clever, very classic um, lawyer. He's, um, he's been described as a forest, like Forrest Gump with a brain. He actually turns up in the right place at the right time. And his idea was to broker a deal with the American Justice Department where he'd worked. And he had contacts there and they worked a plan where there would be um, some give and take. Um, Assange could be free, but it wasn't clear how free he could be. He could leave the embassy because he needed treatment for a lung problem that he's got. Uh, but where he would go, would he go to the United States? How protected would he be? These are the sort of things that were going on. And, and the backdrop to this is that the CIA, the Americans know that... Assange has got a lot of documents that are problematic for them. And so there's a certain amount of pressure here to, to, to get some sort of resolution to all this. Um, in the middle of all this, James Comey, who's the director 
of the FBI at the time, decides to step in and kibosh any discussion. So um, no more discussions. But the Justice Department carry on. They say, we're going to carry on with the talks. They just ignore Comey. Keep going. Later on, in, in, in mid-April of the year, um, there's, a, there's a moment when a deal might be going to be struck. But it gets very, very um, tense for Assange. Um, there's a change of government in Ecuador. He's got a problem with a new president coming in who's not supportive of him. And he's also got this nagging worry about what the Americans are up to, given that Comey had cut off any official relationship. So he puts out the second tranche of documents. He puts out the what they call the Bolt 7 second tranche. Yeah. And these are the documents which show, among many things, but they particularly show that the Americans have been spying on China in detail. Because how do we know that? Because the people that provide software to protect your, um, your computer systems, the, um, the antivirus companies identified the stuff that had been used to attack China in the, in the code that was produced in the WikiLeaks documents and said, this is evidence that we're kind of wasting our time. The CIA are breaking our codes. So that was after that, 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 um, Mike Pompeo, who was um, then the um, CIA director, said that WikiLeaks was a hostile intelligence agency. And things started going downhill from there. But then again, there were then other back channels that were coming into Assange from the United States. And those people were coming in. Some senators came in, one in particular, and was offering Assange a pardon if he would point away, point towards his sources. Yeah. Assange would, would refuse to do that, of course. Of course, yeah. So we, so we ended up with, with, with this thing trailing off um, in a very messy fashion. But at that very time, the uh, security agencies, these are the guys who weren't actually the guys that got the dockers and the, the stuff in the first place in Madrid. They were the agency that were actually in there filming Assange with his lawyers. They were... Um, what can I say? They were getting more and more keen at gathering more and more information. They put better cameras in. They put better microphones in. Microphones in the toilet. Microphones everywhere. Cameras everywhere. Sucking up every single thing they could as the United States began building its case against Assange. So they were breaking the law by doing that. And it's argued that if you use that information or you know about that information, and you use it to prosecute Assange in the United States, that's illegal. You can't actually use that information. And in fact, the case should fall because of it. And in fact, the yeah. argument in London is that the case should fall because of that. And yeah. somebody in Spain is actually being charged with spying yeah. on lawyer-client relationship, spying on Assange and his lawyers. And that's an indictable offence in Spain, and there is a person charged with that offence. Yeah, yeah. Spain, Spain come good every now and then with these things, don't they? They were, I think they were the first ones that uh, stopped Mr. Kissinger from uh, prancing around the world and thinking he'd got away with it all. Yeah, um, uh, tell us about the Dream Team, the mobile devices branch, what they were doing. I mean, what uh, they were putting into our equipment. 
it would be true to say the F you mean the FBI story of how the guy was uh, broke it was accused of um of stealing these documents and then um and, and then was arrested by the FBI do you mean that, that no no I, I mean the mobile devices branch of the CIA who were who were building all this copying stuff and codes into our iPads and our phones and well, uh, and, well I like the ones they're doing with the car where they could put, putting stuff in cars and sure well this is the first tranche of um of the documents the the um vault seven documents yep. and yeah. they, they were the ones that showed that um it, it was suggested that some of the devices that the cia were using uh, were capable of intercepting a car's engine systems and um and directing it and tracing it um so that you can actually shut it down and maybe blow it up so they would have control if you've got a a navigation system in the car they could probably run you off the road into the path of an oncoming truck um, do you think the cia has got to the point where it can't distinguish between reality and a video game i mean it, it seems to me when you read this stuff you think they've lost the plot i mean yeah well, uh, it, well, well i think look i mean well yes yes that's right they i mean i think the cia clearly has problems with its security that's for sure and when you consider that it's got problems with its security and stuff is leaving leaving the building in truckloads really high quality stuff you've got to say well if they're that bad with their security how good are they with our security yes yes that's that's indeed true I've, I've, we've, we've got to wind up um and i, I want to just you're aware of timothy schneider the historian a uh, late historian who whose book tyranny 20 lessons from the 20th century on tyranny all this comes around to some of the things that are happening at the moment it, it I, I i read this today one of sydney as snyder's lessons was be wary of paramilitary when the pro-leader paramilitary and the official police and military intermingle the end has come mm. and this is why it's so important that we have the Assanges, the WikiLeaks, and the whistleblowers, surely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, whistleblowers are actually important, um, not just for members of the general public who are kept from secrets, but from those who hold secrets, and from those who see the internal contradictions and the lies and the fraud and the danger within organizations. So they are like a um, uh, blowing off steam. They, they are an escape valve because these secrets are only a small, small fraction of the big, big secrets that are held. And they are really, even though we as journalists call them their secrets, this secret material, it's of a very low order compared to the really, really compartmentalized top secret stuff. So we do need whistleblowers inside organizations to help those organizations deal with the contradictions that they, that they face. I mean, as an example, as a human example, if you like, Let's take Edward Snowden. Edward yep. Snowden was somebody who was brought up properly to honor the Constitution of the United States, and he believed in it. He actually carried a copy of the Constitution. He did. Right. Yes. They sent him overseas to the, for the CIA. He worked for the CIA. Then he moved to the NSA. And throughout this trajectory, he's being told, don't worry about that. Don't worry about those things you learned back in America. Don't worry no. about the Constitution. This is what we no. do here. We don't honor that thing. 
you can't bring up citizens to believe in one thing and to and for these great young yeah. people to go out into the world and then expect them to behave in a different way. That's the contradiction. And I think that that's the saving grace. That's the saving argument of the United States is that people do believe in these things. It's only when they go overseas that they start to behave uh, in, a, in a less than constitutional manner, if I can put it um, uh, yeah. delicately. Well, Mark, finish, finish on a, a quote, wonderful quote I love of Mark Twain, uh, being one of the great Americans, who said, um, the truth is a fragile thing. Use it sparingly. Um, and that's what we've been watching. I thank you for tonight, Andrew. I've really enjoyed having a chat with you, and uh, I just hope you get home safe and um, make sure someone checks your car before you get into it. Um, uh, lovely talking to you, and, uh, and I hope it all goes well. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you very much for the conversation. And to everybody here tonight, on behalf of the University of Melbourne Publishing House, Melbourne University Publishing, uh, on behalf of Brian, on behalf of Readings, on behalf of Andrew, what a treat. Thank you, thank you so, so much. See you next time. Brian, extraordinary. Andrew, thank God for people like you. Good night. Bye. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can also sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.